All right. Thanks, Terry, so much. Micah, you too. Sorry, I had to run up here. Canaan just walked in. I hadn't seen him, and so I wanted to say hi to him before we got started. Uh, he had his first official drum lessons uh, today, so I'm anxious to hear how that all played out. Um, it's going to be an interesting ride, I can tell you that. Hey, here's what we're going to do tonight. Uh, last week, we had the opportunity to listen to Casey uh, share with us uh, about her trip to Africa. Uh, tonight, I want to spend a little bit of time just in uh, giving praises and thanksgiving and stuff like that together. Uh, so I'm going to tell you that that's coming now so that when we get to it, you'll be prepared with something to say. So I'm going to give us... Uh, a walk through tonight of Jonah chapter 1 verses 4 through 12. I'll pray and then we're going to give in, into our time of sharing praises and even request and close our evening out celebrating and praying together if that's cool with you guys. No objections? I hear none? Cool, let's move forward. Jonah chapter 1. Last week we talked about how God had asked Jonah to do something that he never dreamt that God would have called him to do. God actually commanded Jonah to care uh, for people that he actually despised. So not only did he ask him to care for them, he asked him to demonstrate God's love and God's grace by taking a message of repentance to the people. They were enemies for Jonah. So Jonah's less than thrilled at that assignment. and He didn't want to have to love people that he actually despised. And so he struggles greatly with that. There's a, a German word called schadenfreude. Schadenfreude is uh, it's when you gain satisfaction at the misfortune of someone else. So it's like when that person at work whom you do despise greatly fails to get the promotion that they are eager to obtain and then you find the inner delight inside yourself because they didn't get it. That person whom you went to high school that was extremely annoying and you show up at a 30 or 40 year reunion to only to discover that they've gained 60 pounds and they look aged and worn and you see that and you take inner delight in that. Come on, I know who you are. It's like, that's like Jonah. Jonah would rather see the Ninevites get destroyed than to see them turn to God. He wasn't the first person that had that attitude, nor would he ever be the last person to have that attitude. I think we're guilty of it far more often than we would like to admit it. I'll give you a couple of dates as an example. Curious as to, do you remember what you were feeling or what you were thinking about? On the date of December 30th, 2006, that day may mean something to you, it may not. But if I tell you that that was the day that Saddam Hussein was executed, perhaps that jogs to memory feelings that you might have had on that day. 
if not that one, what about on May 2nd, 2011? That was the day that Osama bin Laden was killed. I can remember listening to believers take great delight in celebrating the fact of their death. And I also remember finding that extremely disturbing, that we would find delight in knowing and in celebrating the most likely outcome of someone's death leading them into an eternity in hell. Do you find joy, do you find delight in the death of your enemy? Before you're quick to say it's not the same thing. I'd argue it's the exact same thing. Here's the truth. God loves people. God loves people so much that he sent his son as a sacrifice, as a demonstration of his love for those that would put their faith and trust in Jesus that they might receive mercy and the grace of God. So God loves people. God loves all people, for instance. God loves the alcoholic. God loves the drug addict. Do you? Does God love people with tattoos and body piercings? Yeah, he does. Do you? Does God love the murderer? Does God love the abortion-performing doctor? Yeah, he does. But do we? Does God love the adulterer, the father that's addicted to pornography? Yep, loves him too. Does God, here's one that will probably get you. What about the pedophile? Does God love them as well? Yeah, he does. You see, God's mercy, his love, his forgiveness, and his grace are available to everyone, but not all will receive it. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 4 says that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. His patient, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, Christ didn't die for perfect people. We're all sinners. It's just that we have a tendency to think that our sin is different than other people or our sin is lesser than other people's sin. Jonah thinks this way, and I think that's one of the reasons why he's so reluctant and unwilling to go to Nineveh. So tonight, I want us to continue to look at our text so that we can see how God responds to our disobedience. And so you remember last week we dealt with Jonah's decision to, to, to run, not to do as God asked. God's command was very clear, very concise, very direct. And so instead of going to Nineveh, uh, Jonah actually goes in the opposite direction, and he tries to run from God. Verse number 3 says, But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, 
paid a fare and, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Two major truths I want to unpack in verses 4 through 12 tonight. Truth number one is that God loves you so much to let you remain in disobedience without bringing discipline into your life. Say that again. God loves you so much that he's not going to let you remain in disobedience without bringing discipline into your life. Verse 4. Verse 4 says that the Lord, great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so the ship was about to break up. So here's the scene. Jonah chose a path of disobedience, and God would have been well within his rights to say, all right, Jonah, you're going to disobey me? Fine. Your disobedience to me, now I'm going to forfeit you the right to be my child, and so I am done with you. God would have been well within his rights to do such a thing should he choose, but he doesn't. That's not what he does. I want you to notice the contrast between the first two words in verse number three compared to verse number four. Verse number three says, but Jonah, and then the first two words of verse number four says, the Lord, or if you have the ESV, it says, then the Lord. So Jonah expresses his puny rebellion against God, but God loves him so much that he's not going to let him get away with this rebellion. And mind you, God also loves the people of Nineveh so much that he's not going to let Jonah get away with this re rebellion. And so therefore, the Bible says that God sent the storm. It says that the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm. So we know that the Lord can calm the troubled waters of our lives, but have we ever stopped to think that he's the same Lord that can stir them up into a frenzy in order to accomplish his purpose? You ever think about that? He can also be the one that's behind the storm in your life. God's too merciful. God is too loving to allow his children to drift into open rebellion without disciplining them. David understood this. David writes in Psalm 119, which I, I'm, I love that we're going to be reading through 119 until we get through it on Sunday mornings. And we're going to go stanza by stanza but listen how, how David clearly understands this. In Psalm 119, verse number 67, he says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It says, Before I was afflicted, before you brought discipline into my life, I, I went astray. And then in, in verse number 71, it says, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. So, so David praises God for the discipline that, that he experienced in his life because it corrected his behavior and it got, led him into a, a path of obedience. See, some people think that they can go on and on in unrepented sin with the, without the chastisement of God. But that's not what God's Word says. I'd encourage you to, to, to mark Hebrews chapter 12. 
In fact, if you want to look at it, I'll wait for you. Read a portion out of Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to pick up in there in um, verse number 7. There it says, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Like go back in, in verse number, uh, verse number eight clearly says if you are, are without discipline, so if you're living in open rebellion, if you're living with unrepented sin in your life, and you're without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. God cares for us so much, and he cares for our, our walk and our pursuit of, of holiness, that if we're living in outright rebellion to him, then he's going to bring discipline upon us. This is what's happening to Jonah. In fact, I'd be as so direct to say that if you're living, I won't project it on you, I'll speak for myself. If I am living in open rebellion and outright sin against God's word, and I don't experience discipline in my life, then I'd better pause and truly reflect and consider, do I really belong to him? That's what scripture teaches in a place like 2 Corinthians. kind of captures the same thing about testing the, the spirit and making sure that you're truly a child of God. So in our text tonight, we see that Jonah, Jonah's life, that, that God sends a storm to, to, to capture his attention. And it's not just a, a minor storm. It's a, it's a major significance. So truth number one is that God loves us so much that he's not going to allow us to remain in disobedience without bringing discipline. And truth number two is a believer's disobedience always involves or affects other people. In other words, it goes beyond just you. It has an impact on others. Verse number five says, then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. And they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Now, imagine this is a scene. It's because of Jonah's sins that all of these sailors are in a horrible storm. 
They're afraid for their lives. These sailors are about to die because of the storm that is upon them. And it's because of Jonah's sin, not their own. Jonah's sin is what put them in this circumstance. Which means we don't sin in seclusion. Like secondhand smoke, our sins have an effect on other people. And so one of the tragedies of being a, a rebellious or a backslidden Christian is that they make everyone around them miserable in their lives. These sailors have been discussing the storms and, and they've concluded that this isn't like anything that they've ever experienced before. They're each crying out to their gods and, and they've been through many storms before, but something was different, something was unique, and they were afraid for their lives. They've been able to handle the other storms that, that came their way, but they couldn't handle this one. So they come to the conclusion that the reason why this one's different is because there must be someone among them that have done something so incredibly horrible. And so what do they do? They decide the only way that they can figure out who it is that's among them that's guilty of this horrible offense, then they're going to cast lots. They're going to cast lots to discover who's at fault. And we, we think that when we sin, no one will know about it, but God knows. God always knows. Not only does God know, in this case, then God calls Jonah uh, to, to draw the short straw. He, he chose Jonah to, to be the one whom the, the, the lots fell upon. People may, may think that there's such a, a, a thing of it just being determined by chance. You speak of lady luck, karma, or a mathematical calculation will determine the proper outcome. But, but here God, God tells us that he controls what happens. There's a verse in Proverbs. It's actually Proverbs chapter 16 verse number 33 that says that the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord there's no such thing as lady luck or chance and notice in, in verse number five it said but Jonah had had gone below into the hold of the ship laying down and fallen sound asleep so the captain approached them and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up and call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account uh, this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Now, once he's been identified as the cause to the problem, I believe that these men began to ask Jonah a series of questions that occur in like rapid fire type of order. Verse 8, he says, Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven uh, 
who made the sea and the dry land. Look in verse number 10, I believe that when the men found out that, that Jonah was running from the Lord God, that the God of Israel, that, that these men instantly became extremely terrified. Because verse 10 says, Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. So, so now, instead of being afraid of, of the storms, these veteran sailors were much more afraid at this point of the Lord God than they were the storm itself. And the reason why they have that fear is because they had been well aware of the Lord God. They knew whom Jonah's God was. His reputation preceded that event. This was the God who had brought the plagues upon Egypt. This is the God that had opened the Red Sea. This is the God that had drowned Pharaoh's army. The sailors knew that this was the God who brought down the walls of Jericho. They knew that this is the God that had caused the sun to stand still for Jonah. The God who was pursuing Jonah, the sailors knew this was a, a great, a mighty, a powerful God. No wonder they're terrified. And so the sailors asked Jonah what they must do in order to appease this great God. In verse number 11, it says, So they said to him, what should we do to, to you that the sea may become calm for us? So they're trying to find peace. They're trying to fix the problem. It says, for the sea was becoming increasingly stormy, so it was only getting worse. Now the state of Jonah's heart is revealed in his response to the question, what should we do to make the sea calm for us? Jonah could have and should have responded with, oh, it's obvious what we must do. God wants me to go to Nineveh, but I try to do my own thing, so therefore we need to turn this ship around and take me back so I can get to Nineveh, and once we turn around and go back, then everything will calm down. But does Jonah call on his God? Does he ask for forgiveness? Does he make a vow to return and to do what the Lord called him to do? You're familiar with the story. No. He's so determined in his rebellion that check out verse number 12. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. Last week we talked about how Jonah's hatred for the Assyrians and hatred for, for Nineveh was so strong that he would rather run from God and directly disobey God than to go and to preach and to offer an opportunity for re repentance for Nineveh. Here, we see that not only would he rather run from God, 
Jonah would rather die than to do what God's called him to. Jonah has such a deep-rooted hatred for these people that he'd rather run from God, refuse to offer a message of repentance, and when called out by God, instead of repenting, then Jonah would rather just die. He'd rather die in direct disobedience than to have to take a message of repentance to his enemies. That is a deep, deep hatred. What do we learn from this? What can we learn from this? We back up to some of the things that we're wrestling through as a body. We know that God's word commands us all to go and to make disciples. It's a clear command from, from our Lord and Savior. Go make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. We, like Jonah, have received a direct command from our Lord God. I'm afraid, like Jonah, we have our own reasons for wanting to openly just disregard the clear command that God's put on our lives. Now, God called Jonah to go to his enemy's territory, to go to Nineveh. I wonder, where is God sending you? To whom is God calling you to, to go and to speak and to offer a, a message of repentance? Uh, better yet, who's your Nineveh? Have you ever thought about that? There's a, I'm sure many of you have seen the movie. Goes back a little bit, but I enjoyed it when I saw it the first time, the movie Titanic seen the movie, you don't have to raise your hand. But there's a, a, a scene in the movie that deeply disturbs me. I mean, here you have this massive ship that's on its maiden voyage. It's going from England to New York. It ultimately ends in horribly a disastrous outcome and 1,500 lives are, are lost and the ship is sinking. The officers uh, attempt to keep the fourth-class passengers behind locked gates so that the first-class passengers could have access to the lifeboats. Eva Hart, who, who survived that night, she said that after the Titanic sank, after crashing into that iceberg, she said, and quote, I saw all the horror of its sinking. And then she says, and I heard even more the dreadful cries of drowning people. About 20 lifeboats and, and rafts, certainly not enough to provide safety and refuge for everyone. But many of those lifeboats and rafts were only partially filled. 
So they clearly weren't prepared for such a disastrous moment. Shortly after 2.20 in the morning, when the uh, Titanic went under, it said that only one lifeboat went back to try to rescue those from drowning. Only one. The reason why everyone else didn't want to go back is because they didn't want to risk their lifeboats being rocked or overfilled and something happened to them. The reason why the other 19 didn't go back is because they were more concerned about their own safety than they were about the lives of other people that were desperately trying to survive. I'm afraid that we're a lot like that. I'm afraid that, 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 that we're afraid of getting our hands dirty. That we're afraid of, of getting our feet wet or, or we're afraid of just getting involved in the lives of other people that desperately need Jesus because in the end it ultimately might cost us something. And because we're unsure of what the ultimate cost might be, then we'd rather hold everything that we have and keep it to ourselves instead of being willing to, to live our lives with open hands and say, God, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to say, wherever you want me to go, man, I'm all in. I'm all yours. Use me. And so we, we read through biblical accounts like this, and it's so easy to look at this and think, man, what is wrong with that guy? Message of the Lord clearly comes to him and says, and go. He gets a direct assignment from our Heavenly Father. And we think, man, that dude's messed up. How foolish of him. Unfortunately, a lot of times, I think we'd have to admit, I'm Jonah. I'm Jonah. Running from God's calling on my life. Refusing to do what he's asked me to do. And so tonight, may you know, God doesn't allow his children to just live an outright rebellion against him without him bringing discipline or the rod of correction into our lives. And I actually hope that you find comfort in that. I think that's good news because that demonstrates how loving our Father is, that he loves us enough to correct us in our rebellion and to try to guide us back into the proper path. So, next week, we will pick up right here. I'll stop at verse number 13. So, before we move into our time of praise and testimonies and thanksgivings and stuff like that, let me just lead us in a word of prayer if I could. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for tonight. I thank you for an opportunity to gather, to open up your word, to look at your word, uh, and to find encouragement from it. Father, I pray that we would just stop going through the motions of life, that we would truly understand who you called us to be, and that we would be fully devoted and fully surrendered to honor that calling in our lives. We are surrounded with desperation. 
we are surrounded with hopelessness and frustration. Father, as your children, may you give us such a love and such a conviction and such a desire to help other people to come to know you. So may we always be willing to serve. May we always be willing to speak of your great name. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.